Uh, who's been to Little Gidding? Yeah, a few of you. Uh, and Elliot went to Little Gidding uh, and had, as you'll see in a moment, an uh, important time there in that he, um, it affected him. Uh, and this Little Gidding, which uh, is the fire, um, the element here is the fire, uh, he wrote while he was um, under a little bit of pain. He'd, um, <laughs> he'd had his teeth extracted and was trying to get used to dentures. <laughs> and uh, he was uh, concentrating on physical exhaustion and decay a little bit. <laughs> uh, and it strikes me, and some people write about this, about the four quartets, that in some ways the four quartets <coughs> is a poem of exile that it's looking at human beings in exile, longing for their homeland, the still point. And uh, what Eliot does is try to remind us of the urgency of trying to get to safe land, something that, of course, is very much in the world at the moment, the urgency with which you will get into that small boat uh, and set off for safety. And it's this spiritual urgency, I think, that Eliot is focusing on. Um, and to be, to be banal, Bert Norton, time can obliterate. So wake up. East Coker, home is where you start. But you're not going to end in the same place. It's going to be painful. Uh, get, get ready. Gear yourself up. Uh, then we move on to dry salvages. There is wreck, <laughs> or you can be assisted to fare forward. Okay. The bell's tolling. Are you listening? Are you keeping your eyes out? And then, little gidding. This is as close as we're going to get in this poem, or, and maybe in our mortal life, to the still point. This, this uh, quartet is nearing the place towards which the poem has been straining. And Little Gidding is um, a village in uh, Huntingdonshire where in 1626 uh, Nicholas Ferrer established that Christian community of 35 to 40 people of both sexes and all ages <coughs> based on the idea of the Christian family, community, uh, combining uh, regular devotions, prayers, with intellectual and physical labours uh, and social service for the neighbourhood. And um, King Charles I went there, and there's a reference to, I think, a broken king at one point. King Charles I went there, uh, and after the defeat of the royalist cause, the parliamentary troops sacked the house and the church, and the community was dispersed. Uh, it was known, of course, by George Herbert, and uh, George Herbert, uh, as he was dying, <coughs> sent, as you know, his, his poems to Nicholas Farrer at Little Gidding, <coughs> and said, if you think there's anything of worth in here, well, publish them, and if not, just put them in the fire. <laughs> Luckily, Farrer didn't go anywhere near the fireplace. Uh, but I think the thing about Little Gidding, to me, is that it had this dance, it had this cycle. Um, it had this liturgy. And, of course, this is what liturgy does. It imposes on time um, 
by punctuating eternity into it, as it were. So you are copying the, the dance, the cycle of eternity in the forever now uh, of God. So liturgy can happen any place, any time, anywhere because you are in the time of the Almighty. And this life that was lived by this, as it were, divine choreography uh, was in a way a reflection of, of the still point that Eliot was striving towards. So he talks about going to Little Gidding in section one. Midwinter spring is its own season, sempiternal, that's enduring constantly, though sodden towards sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic. When the short day is brightest, with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice. Isn't that what we've been praying for? Something of us, that the brief sun will flame our ice and we will defrost. Pond and ditches in windless cold that is the heart's heat, reflecting in a watery mirror a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon. Uh, ice, by the way, and fire go together a lot because um, I think it was in medieval period that ice was thought to be part of um, hell. Strangely, in Dante, of course, uh, Lucifer, probably remember, is uh, halfway up in ice when when uh, he gets down into uh, below the flames. There is Lucifer uh, in his waist in ice. Ice is found in the apocalyptic fire. So ice and fire here, very again resonant with the past, stirs the dumb spirit. This is stirring the dumb spirit. Dumb can also can mean, of course, I can't speak of it. I'm dumb. Can also, of course, mean limited. <laughs> uh, and here, the hedgerow is blanched for an hour with transitory blossom. Sounding again like that rose garden. This transitory blossom of snow, a bloom more sudden than that of summer neither budding nor fading, no beginning, no end, not in the scheme of generation, the time of coupling, as it were. So where is the summer, the unimaginable zero summer? Where is the state of affairs at the still point? If you came this way, he says, rather sort of nonchalantly, as if he was giving you directions uh, in the pub, if you came this way, taking the route you would be likely to take from the place you would be likely to come from, if you came this way in May time, you would find the hedges white again. In May, with voluptuary sweetness. It would be the same at the end of the journey. If you came at light like a broken king, as Charles did, if you came by day not knowing what you came for, it would be the same when you leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning from which the purpose breaks only when it is fulfilled, if at all. And then at the end, but this is the nearest, in place and time, now and in England. 
thing is, all the nows, that, those moments where you go, ah, yes, that, that, that experience that we've been uh, ex- exploring for the whole of today, all those nows have the potential to be the nearest. It doesn't matter where you are. Any place, this is an approach into the still point, that now. If you came this way, taking any route, starting from anywhere, at any time or at any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. So you can't come here driven by your appetites. I want this, I want that. Your busy desires, your twittering selves, your high gear presuppositions. No. Put them off. You're not here to verify instruct yourself or inform curiosity or carry report you are here to kneel is is now time present yes yeah yes but of course when once you kneel yes. it's also time it's past and future now is time past yes. yes and what happens when you kneel what are you doing you are becoming humble humility we're going back to the advice he was giving earlier. Yeah. Um, when you kneel, you become more like what you're kneeling in front of. You, yeah. you're, you're starting to reflect the divine humility, what, what Herbert calls the heaven's humility. Thank you. So you're not here to verify, to, to say that you're right, to carry a report, to write your sermon. <laughs> You're not here to instruct yourself to learn a bit more information. You're here to kneel where prayer has been valid. And then he says, and prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying and what the dead had no speech for when living. They can tell you being dead, of course, now. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, and this is again incarnation, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere. Never and always. What's the response that we have to this? Is this, is this feeling more hopeful? <laughs> have we moved here? Is this more frightening? Do you feel, oh my goodness me, this is somebody was saying to me earlier, um, uh, oh, there are a lot of demands, aren't there? <laughs> it's hard work, this. Um, how, how do we respond to this we're talking, Richard? Overwhelming. <coughs> overwhelming. Tell me more. Why is it overwhelming? Because it's everything you, because of all the parables, it's everything you just said, but it's also nothing. It's what? It's everything you just said. Yes. Yes, okay. Yeah. But that's why the interesting, and somebody called uh, over lunch was saying the non Eliot word, trying, was interesting earlier. Which sort of says, well, maybe trying is the important part. Uh, because we're all sort of perfectionists somewhere. And you just, you can treat this as another thing to do. Well, I've now got to find the still point. <laughs> no, you haven't. You've got to kneel. Is it inevitable? 
a place that is inevitable. You've reached. Ah, well. Having gone through it. Yes, the question is, and this is debated a lot, is whether Eliot thought that that, that could ever be uh, reached in this life or whether it was beyond this life. Uh, I think, reading him, you get a very strong sense, because I think he knew himself quite well, that it, in this life you get the hints and the guesses. You do your prayer, your discipline, your thought and action, and you kneel, and that's about it. But maybe that's enough. <laughs> Sorry, just to say, does nowhere and never mean that? Nowhere and never. So um, it, it, it is, it was, and it always will be, and it doesn't matter where you are geographically, because this is the still point of the divine choreography. So it can be with the oldest life forms on the beach, it's the future, it's the, you know... Yeah, it's it's now, it's in time, it's here, it's in Little Gidding, but it's also always and, and nowhere. It's a bit like, he was, a Catholic, he was an Anglo-Catholic Christian, and uh, it's a bit like how you understand the celebrating of the Mass, in the Catholic understanding that as you're taking the bread and wine, this was the past, this is Jesus on the night he was betrayed, it's also now, 11.30 St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's also the future, the uh, consummation of the Lamb who was slain in Revelation. It's past, present and future all cut, caught up in God's now. Mm. And I think that's the sense you get. It's England and it's nowhere. I, I've always thought of <coughs> all the but particularly this one, as being, if you like, advention, in the sense of in Advent we are thinking... Yes of the beginning and um, the end yes. and where we're moving to in our life. Yeah. And I've, I've thought of all, but this particularly, I've always, and I, I keep asking the vicar if I can read a bit from this during Advent, <laughs> they won't understand, but um, <laughs> um, right. I do, I do well, feel it's very, str very strongly. Yeah, well, they may not understand, but it may be helpful. about trying, but also non-trying. Non-trying. Yeah. Yes. Um, which I think is something that um, Buddhism talks about in terms of, you know, the more you try to do something, the less likely you are to sort of reach. Yes, and one of the... Th I mean, he was brought up... And it was brought up as a Unitarian. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons he <coughs> moved away from Unitarianism, he said, is because it focused on conduct. Yeah. Oh. It was all about doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, and actually, here you get the sense of, um, yeah, you try, you do your disciplines, but you kneel where prayer's been valid, you, you adopt the humility, and the rest should flow. Yes? More about just being and deeply listening. Yes. Rather than Yes, and I think that, uh, I mean, some of you have heard me say this before, but, you know, I think that sense that you've been given the gift of being and the gift you give back to God is your becoming yes. mm, yeah. so here this is what I mean about exile you've been given this gift of being are you going to sit in the underground with your time ridden face behind a periodical not looking at anybody is that how you're going to return your gift of being or are you going to become something of a reflection of the still point but I think that's so you go to Little Gidding and you get a glimpse of what that might mean. Yeah. 
And why should it be Little Gidding? <laughs> um, his references to England. Mm. Um, I wonder if it if it doesn't refer to ramifications of um, you know the division of Protestant and Catholic, mm -hmm. and the deep hatreds and um, schisms in families, and how Nicholas Ferrer tried in his own way to heal all those divisions. Yes. His, and yes. I, I do wonder if um, it's something to do but with I think, that. But I think that the idea that you were basing a community around that kneeling, mm. the thought, the discipline, the action, all those things, he's, here was a community that was trying to do that. Mm. Uh, and, and there was the still point at the centre of it all. You were guessing and hinting and all that, but there it was. Mm. And I think he visited and could see, felt it. Saw and this was a place perhaps he's visited and yes. found mm. that for yes. himself. Mm. And, and, you know, he had a very strong sense, 17th century sensibility. <laughs> you know, he, he enjoyed the metaphysics because they thought in metaphors. <coughs> you know, this was, this was a sensibility he was drawn to. He famously talked about the dissociation of sensibility, when thought and feeling were taken apart after that period, and he lamented that. So here was more holistic thinking, uh, where prayer and thought came together. Uh, and it's about transformation too. Yes. Waiting to be transformed. Totally. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So yeah, not the information, but the the formation, the transformation. But is he also talking about the idea of visiting somewhere which is time present? Yes. But looking at time past and feeling about, say for example, Charles being there and Nicholas Ferrer being there yeah. and using that time past to infuse his present which then will take on into the future. Yeah. That same so only time can redeem time. So he's in England now. Yes. Yeah. So this is again incarnational, sacramental. Uh, it is not hate. It's not flesh hating, human hating, world hating. This no. is God now in the world, in infused in the world, and our, the tragedy is we're somewhere else. Okay. Um, I just wanted to make quick comment on uh, in section two, one, two, three, four down, in the uncertain hour before the morning, near the ending of interminable night, at the recurrent end of the unending, after the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing, while the dead leaves still rattled on like tin. Did, did anybody have, when you read that, did that did you wonder what this dark dove was? Because <laughs> 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 doves are going to come back. Uh, very much Holy Spirit, but this is not Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's not the blitz, is it? Yes, I think it is the blitz. I think the dark dove is a Messerschmitt or a Stuka. And, and its flickering tongue is the machine gun fire. And the interminable night. Uh, this is Eliot warning us of what's happening to civilization, and this is what happens in section two, and this is where um, uh, you, I think, brought up Dante, 
because uh, I think this is where Dante walks on stage in section two. He says, I met one walking, loitering and hurried as if blown towards me. There's a sort of ghost-like nature to this. Uh, all punctuation's gone, by the way, which, um, if you remove punctuation, it makes things um, more nightmarish. <laughs> the control's gone. Punctuation controls language. Take it away, anything could happen. Uh, and here it is, it's gone. Blown, <laughs> as it were, towards me. Uh, and here's this, this figure, this ghost-like figure, the first met stranger in the waning dusk, I caught the sudden look of some dead master. Um, well, it could be Homer, Virgil, I think it's more likely to be Dante, if anybody, whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many, in the brown baked features, desiccated corpse face, mummified, almost centuries old, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, intimate, and unidentifiable. So I assumed a double part. So he, this new acquaintance, and yet he feels like an old pupil, new and old, double part, and cried and heard another's voice cry, What, are you here? Although we were not, I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being someone other. Gosh, knowing myself, and yet being someone other. Um, and he a face still forming, yet the word sufficed. And then we carry on down. It says, I said, the wonder that I feel is easy, yet ease is cause of wonder. Therefore speak, I may not comprehend, may not remember. And he, I am not eager to rehearse my thoughts and theory, which you have forgotten. These things have served their purpose. Let them be. So with your own, and pray they may be forgiven by others, as I pray you to forgive both bad and good. Last season's fruit is eaten, and the fulfilled beast shall kick the empty pail. So nothing that we can do uh, will suffice for the order of things that we encounter at the intersection and the still point. Uh, last year's words belong to last year's language. Next year's words await another voice. So this is language trying to catch up with, with the most important uh, of all. And, but as the passage now presents no hindrance to the spirit unappeased, that's unsatisfied, and peregrine, so pilgrimed, between two worlds become much like each other. And just carrying on down here, it said, since our concern was speech, and speech impelled us, to purify the dialect of the tribe and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight. I think there he summarizes the poet's vocations. To purify the dialect of the tribe. So we all get tribal. We all uh, find ways of using language and action and thoughts to, to um, find that we've got a place in a tribe to purify that, to free it from its tribalism and urge the human mind to think larger, aftersight, foresight. And this is where I think we get this very strong sense throughout the four quartets that this is a, is a work of exile, seeking our true home. It's also a poem of purgation. 
of purification. Uh, and this is part of the purgation, urging the mind to, uh, to deepen. And then he says, let me disclose the gifts reserved for age. <laughs> to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. Second, if that wasn't enough, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. I often think of the, the old war uh, veterans who are interviewed, you know, in the hundreds, saying, what do you think of the world and war? And they rage at human folly and things that cease to amuse. It's not funny. Cheap words, politicians. Don't use it. Um, and last, oh, this is haunting. <laughs> the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm which once you took for exercise of virtue. <laughs> what about having that as the Kyrie uh, prayer? <laughs> <to listen to? laughs> that would make people sit up differently. <laughs> we confess to you the shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm, which I once took for exercise of virtue. <laughs> This is hard, it's unsparing, but this is the purgation. Fire hurts, fire hurts. Then fools' approval stings and honour stains. From wrong to wrong the exasperated spirit proceeds unless restored by that refining fire. Here's the fire of the last quartet. Where you must move in measure like ah, a dance. Back to the dance. The day was breaking. If you're a Christian, that has resonances. Where did Jesus appear? Day was breaking. In the disfigured street he left me, this figure, this ghost, with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn, like uh, Hamlet's uh, father, <clears throat> the ghost faded on the crowning of the cock, if you remember. Could the ghost be his past self? Yes. Quite often, I think, that when he's talking about they yeah. or other figures, you could be saying he's talking about an alter ego, yeah. the yeah. other you. Yeah. Yeah. So when he's in the garden in Burt Norton and he's talking about they, mm. I often wonder if he's talking about that other part of him. Yeah. Then, section <coughs> three. He's, he's got you sat up now because you're thinking, oh my God, you know, was that me? Uh, there are three conditions which often look alike, <coughs> yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow. Attachment to self and to things and to persons. So this is your, what he calls in the, in the poem early, appetency, your appetite life, your fear of fear. Um, 
you, you've got, you don't know what to grab in you because you don't know where it is or what it is, so you grab everything else and hold on to it. Or there's detachment from self and from things and from persons. So this is the saint. The darkness has come down and there's been purgation and you've, you, you've, you've ungripped your grasping hands and you're moving towards the dance. You've, you're learning the steps of you. And growing between them, <laughs> indifference. Indifference. And he's very hard on this. Sterile. This is an ertzatz, a false tranquility of the soul. Uh, shutting down your faculties. You're not going to fare forward on indifference. And he says, which resembles the others as death resembles life. Being between two lives, unflowering. Between the, the live and the dead nettle, nettle sting. This is the use of memory for liberation. So it's a strange thing about memory. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, split that word into two, do this in remembering of me, put me back together, as it were. Remember means to, to bring back, to reconstitute, to remember. But of, because we have memory, we can repent because we remember the past and we can recover so memory is the tool as it were for repentance and recovery he says it's for liberation not less of love but expanding of love this is not puritanism not less of love but expanding of love beyond desire so liberation from the future as well as from the past you're not going to have fear of fear Then, in the second part of three, sin is behovely. <laughs> Julian of Norwich. Sin rather behoves us. Um, but grace wins. Okay. But all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. But only after this canvas of horror, which we've had, and it has been hard and blunt, and stark only will all be well when you look that in the face with honesty with realism if I think again of this place and of people not wholly commendable of no immediate kin or kindness but of some peculiar genius all touched by a common genius united in the strife which divided them if I think of a king at nightfall of three men and more on the scaffold and a few who died forgotten in other places, here and abroad, and of one who died blind and quiet, why should we celebrate these dead men more than the dying? It is not to ring the bell backward. It is not to ring the bell backward. And at the end of this, he repeats, all should be well, and all manner of things should be well, by the purification of the motive in the ground of our beseeching. Again, the ground of our beseeching is the thou. God, thou. It doesn't say it, but Julian in her revelation says it. Thou art the ground of our beseeching. 
So you do need to know your Julian of Norwich to understand. Thou art the ground of our beseeching. The whole four quartets is moving us towards this vow. This still point sounds rather hmm, unmoved. And all of a sudden it becomes personalised into a vow. The ground of all our beseeching. We are created. Here's the lyrical number four. And we're back to doves, but a different sort of dove, not the Messerschmitt type. The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror, of which the tongues, and more tongues here, but different, declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope, or else despair, lies in the choice of pyre or pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. So fire can either be of damnation, the way we burn ourselves up uh, in a lifetime's distraction, so life just becomes ashes, or it can be the fire of divine love. Again, something that, uh, if we're, as we've got Julian in the picture, comes into play. The fire of divine love. And you've got to choose your pyre. Which is it going to be? And he says, this may be about purgation. This may be about suffering. And that if you've got to divest, if you've got to go into the dark, if you've got to face harsh realities you much prefer not to, well, who then devised this torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. There is no purification in your life without hurt, without scorched uh, sensitivities and, and life. But it is love. It is, as I go back to that word, reliable. This is reality. This is, uh, as I said right at the beginning, this is believing that ultimately reality is trustworthy. And like Herbert, God isn't mentioned here. We don't get G-O-D. There's what Edwin Muir called three angry letters in a big black book, <laughs> which can put a, lot of, put a lot of people off if you put God. It's love. Remember Love 3 by Herbert, mm. one of the most religious poems in the canon, never mentions God. Just love. Here we are again, love. It's the only metaphor we can use with confidence, seems to me. Five. I'm going to read... Uh, well, no, let me, let me just talk a bit about it and then I'm going to end by reading section five because I think it's, uh, it's how we ought to end our day. Well, he starts off section five a little bit <laughs> as he started the whole uh, poem. What we call the beginning is often the end and to make an end is to make a beginning. Well, I think we're getting this now. I think we're, that's a theme that we're running with. He repeats the theme. The end is where we start from. 
And every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others, the word neither diffident nor ostentatious, is how to write poetry if you ever want to know, <laughs> neither diffident nor ostentatious, <laughs> an easy commerce of the old and the new, the common word exact, without vulgarity, the formal word precise, but not pedantic, the complete consort, dancing together. And I think um, one of the reasons that he believed so much in poetry uh, with the, the, the religious, uh, in fact all arts, is because it was patterning itself in reflection of the pattern of the universe. So it was a holistic way of trying to give voice to the choreography of, of all that is. And here he says, the complete consort, dancing together. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. And I think you found that as you sit listening to this work. Every word, you, it starts something off. It closes something down. Um, every poem an epitaph. And any action is a step to the block, the guillotine, the fire, the stake, down the sea's throat, you know, drowning, or to an illegible stone, and that is where we start. You start down. We die with the dying. See they depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose, now back we come to the beginning, the rose garden, the rose, youth, beauty, spring, the moment of the yew tree, the, the cemetery, uh, uh, tree are of equal duration. A people without history is not redeemed from, from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So while the light fails on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now and in and we were talking earlier about how uh, time will not be redeemed without time. That you, uh, If you have memory, then you have the possibility to recover. So recognition is the first step towards salvation. When you see there's a problem, you can do something about it. To do that, you need time. Then we have this space. We had this before. It's almost as if you got to say, now, now take, take a deep breath. <laughs> With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling. No punctuation. This is floating. And what strikes me about the voice of this calling, <coughs> and uh, you're going to find it in the liturgy that we have, is it strikes me about Peter. There was the, the first to be called. He heard the voice of calling. But that first call, as it were, where he gets up and he cuts off people's ears and he jumps into the water and he's a real old sort of, you know, I'm, I'm up for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks, but let's start again, shall we? And so in the resurrection <laughs> stories, Jesus appears to the disciples in the places he was first with them. Upper rooms, beaches, by the water. 
And he's basically, it seems to me, saying, you know, I was here with you first. This is where we spent time together. This is where we ate. This is where we joked. And I told stories. And um, you left me. But I'm back. It's very interesting, of course, when often when he appears he sa- he, the translation says he says peace be with you which makes him sound like he's at a Eucharist <coughs> he says shalom he says hi hello it's me I'm back I'm back where I was with you to begin with uh, so now please please understand that it's my love for you my fidelity my faithfulness that's going to be the base of our relationship. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. And it's the voice of that second calling that means that Peter then is able to give his life. And there's one haunting detail in John's Gospel when Peter is having to say, yes, you know I love you. There's a charcoal fire burning. There was one more charcoal fire burning before and that's when he was denying uh, Jesus, warming himself. So the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, what does it say? We shall not cease from exploration. We are are going to fare forward. We're going to explore. We're not closing down because we're religious and we know it all. And the end of all our exploring will be, remember Peter, to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. And the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. All should be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. The fire that refines, not without pain, not without uh, scorching and heat, and the rose, that blooming beauty, the fragrant perfection, the uh, first world which we heard about in the rose garden, when these, uh, this crown knot of fire, where the fire and the rose become one you suddenly realise that you're back to the beginning. For the first time, you know it. And this is the draw of love and the voice of his calling. I think it's an extraordinary, I wouldn't say resolution to the poem, but it's a drawing of hope into the poem. It's um, almost as if you feel that the, the journey now begins, right at the end. The journey now begins. This succession of timeless moments. History is a pattern of timeless moments. We are to attend to them 
or we will not be uh, beautified, purgated, purified by the fire of love, but by a, an inner fire which will burn us away into nothingness, simply ashes to ashes. And uh, I, I think this is why, in many ways, it is one of the most extraordinary religious texts of the 20th century. And I, I, as I've stood here talking about it today, have continually been astounded by the way in which he talks about our inner life and our inner sense of home, but in such a way that never once calls on a borrowed language, mm. but is fresh and hard and blunt and resolute, but also, I think, reliable. Thank you for listening today.